God's Word this morning to the book of Revelation, chapter 1. We'll be reading the whole chapter, even though the sermon this morning will focus only on the first eight verses. But in order to appreciate the context of what is happening in this, uh, in this book, uh, we, would, we would like to read the entire uh, first chapter, from verse 1 to uh, verse 20. Revelation, chapter 1, verse 1 to 20. If you uh, did not bring a Bible with you this morning, we encourage you to find one of the Bibles provided in the chairs in front of you. You may find this passage on page number 1028. For those of you who are visiting with us uh, this morning, if it's, especially if it's your first time, uh, we are currently um, beginning our sermon series in the book of Revelation. We actually started last week uh, with an overview introduction, and this morning we are getting into the text and uh, working our way through it. Um, let's hear God's Word, and let's hear how the Apostle John uh, sets up this book for us. This is God's Word for us this morning. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show to his servants the things that must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant John, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it, for the time is near. John to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come. And from the seven spirits who are before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of the kings on earth. To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom, priests to his God and Father. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, and all tribes of the earth will wail on account of him, even so. Amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. I, John, your brother and partner, in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus, was on the island called Patmos, on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet saying, Write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus, and to Smyrna, and to Pergamum, and to Thyatira, and to Sardis, and to Philadelphia, and to Laodicea. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me, and on turning, I saw seven golden lampstands, and in the midst of the seven lampstands, one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white, like the white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze refined in a furnace and his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand he held seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. 
and his face was like the sun shining in full strength. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. But he laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not. I am the first and the last, and the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and Hades. Write, therefore, the things that you have seen, those that are and those that are to take place after this. As for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand, and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. Amen. This is the word of the Lord for our hearts. Would you pray with me, asking God to bless the preaching of his word? Let's pray. Father, you have given us a revelation of the things that are to come, of the things that are already. Father, we pray that we would have ears to hear well. We pray that you would give us your Holy Spirit to assist us in interpreting and in applying your word to our hearts. We pray that Christ would be exalted this morning in our gathering. It is in his name that we pray. Amen. Last week, as we gave an introduction to the book of Revelation, we talked about four attitudes um, that we should have as we approach this book. We should approach this book with humility. We should approach this book with enthusiasm, with attentiveness, and with the expectation to worship God. We also gave an overview of, in, of the entire book last week and a, and a short summary of what the book is about. If you missed last week's introduction, you're welcome to go online and listen to the sermon online. We pointed last week that the book of Revelation is, is an apocalyptic literature, and therefore, as we read it, uh, we need to keep in mind the characteristics of apocalyptic literature. It's not a literature we are used to seeing today. This literature is heavy uh, on its use of symbolism and visions and the use of angels to communicate the revelation. But this book is also a prophecy, which means that we must read it in ways similar to the prophetic writings of the Old Testament. So one way for us to interpret the book of Revelation is to keep in mind the Old Testament background. What I did not say last week was that the book of Revelation um, is also... Um, a letter. It's not only um, a prophecy, it is not only an apocalyptic uh, writing, but it's also a letter. A letter written to seven specific churches in Asia Minor. So as we get into the introductory chapter of this book, uh, we see elements of letter writing. Uh, We see an introduction of who is writing, to whom is this letter being sent out. Uh, We also have a, uh, just like in other letters of the New Testament, a rich greeting that is filled with truth about who God is. Uh, So we see all these characteristics of of letter writing in the very first eight verses of the chapter and then even throughout the chapter. Well, this morning, we will not go through the entire chapter. There's just too much in it to cover in one sermon. We will only look at the first eight verses, and Lord willing, if the Lord allows us to gather again next uh, Sunday morning, we will pick up in verse 9 and uh, and work through the rest of the chapter. But this morning, we will look at verses 1 through 8. What is this introductory 
chapter about, as we, as we read it, I wonder if you picked up on how often Jesus is mentioned and referenced in this chapter. He's all over the chapter. The chapter begins with a title section in verses 1, 2, and 3. Then it moves to the greetings section, which is oftentimes common in letter writing, expressing greeting. Uh, this greeting turns into praise. And then in the vision of the exalted Jesus in verse 9 through 20, uh, we see a magnificent, a glorious picture of the exalted Jesus in ways that we have never seen him before up to this point. Um, from these three sections, we will take four major truths. Now, we will only cover the first two truths today, and Lord willing, we will cover the last truths, two truths next week. Here are the four truths so that you can have them. Um, and if you like taking notes, this is what we're going to cover this morning and next week. Jesus gives this revelation as his testimony. That's the first point. Jesus gives this revelation as his testimony. Jesus, the second point, Jesus is at the center of God's coming. The third point, let me say repeat the second one, Jesus is at the center of God's coming. The third point that we will look at next week, Lord willing, Jesus is fearfully glorious. Jesus is fearfully glorious. And number four, Jesus is engaged with his, with his churches. Jesus is engaged with his churches. We want to look at the first two this morning and recognize that this entire chapter is all about Jesus. Jesus gives us this revelation, and he gives it to us as his testimony. The first three verses of this book have often been understood as an, an extended title for the entire book. Have you seen, have you read old books like several centuries ago, and the title of the book is like five or six lines? Old books oftentimes had long titles. And this is exactly what we see here in, in the book of Revelation. Uh, it's appropriate to call this entire, the, the first three verses of this book as a sort of a title phrase of the entire book. Verse 1 starts with the words, The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show to his servants as things that must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant John. It's as if we have a slow motion view of how this vision came to be passed on. It is a revelation of Jesus Christ because he reveals it to his servant John, who in turn writes it to us. He, John, uh, Jesus made it known to John, and the word used for making known is a special word. Um, it's a word that doesn't simply communicate informing someone, like giving information, like telling. It's a word that actually uh, describes showing. It's a word, it's, it's, a, it's a telling by showing. When our children were in the Noah's Ark program, here in the preschool program, every week we had a day that was called show and tell. It was a means by which the children were supposed to bring every week and on that day a toy that started with a particular letter of the alphabet. So that throughout the year, these children would learn the letters of the alphabet uh, by emphasizing one day at a, at, in a week, um, one letter and bringing a toy and associating the toy and saying something about the toy and associating it with a letter. 
Well, in some way, in some very humble ways, the book of Revelation is a show and tell that Jesus gives to the churches. Revelation is not the only book of show and tell. If you remember of the four Gospels, one in particular, the fourth Gospel, the Gospel of John, a significant section of the Gospel of John is the, the first half, which is often being called the book of signs. In the Gospel of John, Jesus, Jesus presents lots of signs, and they are significant not just to amaze people, they were significant to communicate truth about what Jesus is and what he came to do. And here in the book of Revelation, we see signs again used. This time, they're not just earthly signs, but they are visions. They are they're magnificent signs in heaven that, that God enables Jesus to show to his servants. Well, what is Jesus intending to show in this book? He's not just telling, but also showing and telling. What is he trying to show in this book? We read in verse 1, the things that must soon take place. Well, you say, well, what, what, is, what is the significance of that phrase? Is it just about talking about future things? Well, it is talking about some future things, but not only about future things. Later in the chapter, we, Jesus said, write about the things that are and the things that will be. But well, the significance of this phrase, what the things that must soon take place, uh, is apparent when we read the book of Daniel. The book of Daniel this phrase shows up particularly in chapter 2. Remember how God revealed to the Babylonian king, Nebuchadnezzar, a dream that he couldn't, he couldn't interpret? We read about that last week in the service. Uh, Nebuchadnezzar threatens to, to kill all the wise men. And Daniel says, don't, don't kill the wise men. Allow me some time to ask God to help me understand what this dream is. And King Nebuchadnezzar not only required the dream to be interpreted, but even to be told. So Daniel prays. He goes to God and says, Lord God, would you reveal the dream and its interpretation? And God reveals Daniel the dream and the interpretation. And when, when Daniel comes to King Nebuchadnezzar, he praises God for being a God who reveals things. And particularly in Daniel 2, uh, verses 28, 29, and 45, Daniel describes this vision that, that God gave him, the, the dream and the interpretation, he describes it, interprets it three times with a phrase, what must come to pass. God revealed to King Nebuchadnezzar what must come to pass. That phrase in, in the book of Daniel was not just a simple revelation of the future. When Daniel begins to interpret the revelation of what must come to pass, the revelation becomes very clear. It's about the coming kingdom of God. The transition of earthly kingdoms, beginning with the kingdom of Babylon and, and, and the other three kingdoms, from the kingdoms of the earth to the kingdom of God. And the heart of the message of the book of Revelation is this very transition of kingdoms. So when, when, when John describes the, the prophecy, the, the revelation of Jesus Christ uh, that he shows to John about the things that must soon come to place, uh, it's, it's a message that hints back the Old Testament announcement prophecy that the kingdom of God is coming. And now, Jesus says, it's coming soon. Christ entrusted, is entrusted to show the divine plans regarding the coming kingdom of God. But there's an important detail about the very first few words that we can easily miss. 
before Jesus made this revelation known by showing it to, the, to John, John tells us that this revelation of Jesus Christ was given to him by God. Did you pick up on the phrase, very, very beginning, the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him? Why does this matter to us? Why is it important for us to know that this is not just a revelation of Jesus Christ, but that Christ himself received it from his Father? The fact that God gave Jesus this revelation, and Jesus in, in turn shows it to his servants, reminds us of how Jesus spoke about his role of, being, of bringing God's revelation in the Gospel of John. We're going to see a lot, of, a lot of similarities between Revelation and John. At one point, Jesus says, For I have spoken not on my own authority, but the Father who sent me has himself given me a commandment, what to say and what to speak. Jesus also said in, in John 17, For I have given them the words that you gave me, and they have received them and have come to know in truth that I came from you, and they have believed that you sent me. We must understand the book of Revelation, dear friends, as a revelation that God gave to Jesus first. Before he gave it to John, before he got to us, it was a transaction between God the Father and God the Son. We may not see this as a big deal. And what's the big deal of knowing about that? Well, until we get to chapter 5, and we find out that God gave Jesus the scroll of human history to unseal. Only Jesus has the authority. Only Jesus has the credentials to open that scroll. The revelation that Jesus makes known to us is a revelation that he himself received from his Father. We love reading the Gospels, right? Especially the Gospel of John. The Gospels present us the life of Jesus and the teachings of Jesus while he was here on earth. But the book of Revelation is the last words Jesus has for his people, and he speaks them to us as the exalted Christ. Friends, take the book of Revelation as a sequel to the Gospels. Take the book of Revelation as a sequel to what Jesus began revealing in the Gospels and now continues and completes in revealing in this last book of the Bible. It becomes immediately apparent that what Jesus, John hears and receives from Jesus is not merely a revelation, but it's also the Word of God and the testimony of Jesus. In other words, this book, this revelation that God the Father gave the Son is now passed on to the disciples, not only through signs, not only as a prophecy, not only as a letter, but it's also described and passed on as a testimony, the testimony of Jesus. This is a strange way to refer to God's revelation as a testimony, especially as a testimony of Jesus. Why are the visions of this book described in this way? In the book of Revelation, the conflict with the dragon and the beast will manifest in various ways. Sometimes the dragon and the beast will use force and cause persecution against God's people. Sometimes the, 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 the dragon and the beast will cause manipulation, particularly the manipulation of commerce and wealth, to pressure Christians to change their loyalties from worshiping God to worshiping the dragon and the beast. Sometimes... 
and quite a lot, this other theme is also mentioned. The dragon's strategy and the beast's strategy is to use deception and falsehood. The dragon's strategy is to distort and contradict the truth of God. And because of the threat of deception and falsehood, divine revelation in this book is passed on to us as a testimony to testify to what is the truth. And it's a testimony from Jesus Christ to combat the deception and the falsehood promoted by the devil. In the Gospel of John, Jesus describes the words that he, he get, came to bring as a testimony. When uh, Jesus spoke to Nicodemus in John chapter 3, the famous John chapter 3, remember um, what Jesus spoke to him. He said to Nicodemus, Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and we bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. You see, both in the Gospel of John and in the book of Revelation, Jesus passes on to us the word of God, which he heard from his Father. But Jesus doesn't just inform us of that word. He doesn't just show us of that revelation. He himself testifies to it. The book of Revelation is a testimony from the exalted Jesus. Friends, the fact that God's revelation of himself comes to us as a testimony should alert us. We must be alert in discerning God's truth from the various distortions, various false claims about what is truth. This revelation is not a pie in the sky. It's not words written merely by men. The revelation is what the living Christ passed on after he was exalted at the right hand of God. So consider this testimony. Consider the testimony of Christ carefully. The first step in becoming a Christian is to be exposed to the truth that God reveals to us about who he is, about how we have rebelled against him, about how Jesus Christ is the only means by which we can be made right with God, and about how we need to respond to Him by turning away from our rebellion and relying entirely on Jesus Christ for salvation. Those who turn to God in Christ begin following Him and, and trusting in the testimony that He has given. Friends, the world we live in makes us believe that distorted that the truth about God is something that we can just create. Oftentimes people would say, I like to think about God this way. Well, friends, God never gave us a right to think about Him the way we would like to think about Him. That's the devil's trying to distort you, to say you have the right to, to determine how you like to think about the Creator. First of all, we cannot think about Him rightly unless He reveals Himself to us. Second, Our only way to know Him rightly, our only way to actually know Him appropriately, truthfully, is if we base our knowledge of Him, our view of Him, based on what He reveals to us in this book. The devil would try to think and lead us to think that we can come up with our own interpretations, our own understandings, and that we are called to submit ourselves to understand what God has revealed and the way He revealed it. That's why... Uh, an important attitude for reading not just the book of Revelation, but the entire scripture is with humility. The world we live in makes us believe distorted truths about God, about ourselves, about what is really important, about what is lasting. The devil would love for us to believe that all there is in this life is what we experience here and now. 
The devil would love for us to believe that what the, the busyness of this life, the pursuit of riches, the pursuit of fame in this life is, is going to bring the satisfaction that we need. That all there is in this life is what we feel and what we sense in our bodies. But the book of Revelation opens our eyes to see the spiritual realm behind what we experience in this body. Christ presents this revelation from God as his testimony because in no other book of the Bible do we see the theme of deception so widely present as in this book. The majority of the seven churches to whom this book was written in the first century are experiencing various degrees of self-deception about their condition. And throughout this book, the dragon and the beast are presented as seeking to deceive the entire earth. Thus, Christ presents his revelation as his testimony in light of the danger of deception that threatens the whole earth. Yet the theme of testimony and the, the testimony of Jesus is a testimony that also claims our lives, has a claim on our life. It calls us to obey this testimony, just as the people of God were called to obey the prophetic word. The word of God and the testimony of Jesus are references as, as the prophecy of this book. And in verse 3, John declares a blessing. Blessed are those who read, the one who reads, those who hear, and those who keep what is written in it. You know, Jesus, when he was on earth, said a similar blessing in Luke chapter 11, verse 28. Jesus said, blessed rather are those who hear the word of God and keep it. Do you know the first time the, the word testimony was used in the Bible to refer to God's revelation? It was in the Old Testament. The Ten Commandments were written on, two, on tablets of stone. And the tablets of stone are sometimes described in the Old Testament as the stone of testimony, as the tablets of testimony. The ark that housed the tablets of, of testimony is often called the ark of testimony. And the tent that carried the ark that carried the tablets is often called the tent of testimony. Why? Because it reveals, it, it refers to God's revelation. It points to the covenant that God made with his people and to the demand that this testimony has, the claim this testimony has upon our lives. Jesus, dear friends, reveals this revelation. He gives this revelation as his testimony. So we must listen carefully and intently. But the second point we see in this introduction is that Jesus is at the center of God's coming. The greeting of this letter begins. The, gre- leader, uh, the, the greeting of this letter begins in verse four, and uh, what we see in both and how it begins and how it ends, it describes the coming of God. Notice how verse four presents God. John says, "John to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace from Him who is and who was and who is to come." This exact phrase is repeated again in verse eight, where God. Himself is using this phrase to describe, to talk about himself. God says in verse 8, I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come. In other words, John begins this, this, this greeting uh, and ends this greeting to the churches by describing God. And in describing God, um, we see God's name, I am the one who is first time God revealed his, himself, his name to the people of Israel in the Old Testament was in Exodus 3. When Moses, when Moses was sent by God to his people and Moses said, God, your people will ask him, what is the name of the God who's sending you? And God says, 
tell them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you. And they asked me, What is his name? You shall say to them, God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, Say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. God revealed his name to, to his people in this I am. And then he goes on and, and promises Moses that God will be with him as he will redeem his people. Several times in the Old Testament, God has comforted his people by the promise that he is coming to be with them. In the book of Isaiah, chapter 40, the major chapter that turns to comfort God's people, God says, Go up on a high mountain, O Zion, herald of good news. Lift up your voice with strength, O Jerusalem, herald of good news. Lift it up, fear not, say to the cities of Judah, Behold your God. Behold, the Lord God comes with might, and his arm rules for him. Behold, his reward is with him, and his recompense before him. Other passages also speak about God's promise to come to his people. Um, one, just more, the, the, the book of Isaiah ends on another promise that God is coming. Isaiah 66, 15. For behold, the Lord will come. But in Isaiah 66, we are told that he will come with fire. In the Old Testament, God has revealed himself as a God who will not stay far from his people, but will come to be with them, to be among them, not only to save them, but also to put an end to all rebellion and to enter into judgment by fire and by his sword. So no wonder that Revelation begins describing God with this picture, that he is coming, God is coming. And when you just saw the description of Jesus later at the end of the book of, of, of the first chapter, Jesus has a sword coming out of his mouth, and his eyes are like fire. These are all pictures that are, are being taken from the prophecy that we've seen in the Old Testament, in the book of Isaiah, that God will come to his people. But the coming of God, dear friends, for some people will be a word of comfort. For others, it will be a word of terrible, terrible news. The coming of God could be wonderful news for those who trust in Christ. But for those who continue to rebel, to rebel against Jesus... For those, the coming of God will be horrible news. To the Christian, the God who is and who was and who is to come is a source of peace and grace. His presence to, to the Christian is a piece of strength. No wonder that God, that John introduces peace and grace from the one who is, who was, and who is to come. John goes on to identify the source of grace and peace, not only from God the Father, but also from the seven spirits and from Jesus. The seven spirits of God is a unique phrase in the book of Revelation. Uh, it shows up a few more times in this book, as we will see, but it's likely a reference to the Holy Spirit. I say it likely. Uh, thus, Ma John might be introducing us here to the triune God. He is a source of grace and peace. But in this greeting that we see that introduces the book of Revelation, the focus after speaking about God who is and who was and who is to come, after mentioning the Holy Spirit, the largest amount of space given in this greeting is Jesus Christ. From verse 5 to 7, John describes three titles of Jesus and three reasons why Jesus ought to be praised and adored. And finally, the proclamation that Jesus himself is coming. 
as we look at these three titles, we, we'll, we'll, John will conclude this greeting time for the churches. Let's look at why, why, these, why this greeting centers so much on Jesus. And this greeting will center both on, on praising Jesus and announcing that he is coming again. Verse 5, John presents titles about Jesus, the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, and the ruler of the kings on earth. It's not a coincidence that in this book that describes itself as a testimony of Jesus, um, that Jesus is described as a faithful witness. He was a faithful witness while on earth, when he taught all that God has given him. Jesus prayed to the Father, Now they know that everything that you have given me is from you. For I have given them the words that you have given me. Jesus has been a faithful witness. And for this faithful witness, Jesus paid with his life. Jesus also is the firstborn from the dead. This title points both to his death and to his resurrection. Friends, Jesus was, was, born, was sent to earth not only to reveal the Father, but he was also sent to earth so that through his death and through his resurrection, he might actually conquer death. Not only for himself, but for us as well. Notice it says, not the only born from the dead, the firstborn. That implies there's going to be others. That implies he's the first of the, a born from the dead. Uh, but there's others coming. And the book of Revelation will tell us about that. And then the third title is, is he's the ruler of kings on earth. This title speaks about the authority that God has given him over all the kingdoms of the earth. No wonder that John, John's heart explodes with praise, declaring glory and dominion to belong to Jesus forever and, and ever. I wonder if your heart rejoices when you hear that Christ is the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, and the ruler of kings on earth. Do these titles encourage you to worship Jesus? Or do they leave you bored, unaffected, unmoved, ready just to move on and think about what you're going to eat at lunch or think about your plans for this afternoon. Before John ascribes praise to Jesus, even though he gave him three titles, that those, in, those would be enough to, dis, to ascribe praise to Jesus, John goes on to describe three activities that Jesus has done. In verse 5, he says, To him who loves us, and has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom, priests to his God and Father. In other words, Jesus loves us in the present. Jesus has freed us from our sins by his blood and he made us a kingdom and priests for God. Notice what Jesus needed to do for us in regards to our sin. He didn't need merely to forgive us. Jesus had to do something else in regards to our sin. He had to free us from our sin. Friends, this means that sin enslaves. Sin binds us to its power. And what each of us need in regard to our sin is not merely forgiveness, but also liberation to be, to be made free of it. And the only means to be made free of sin is through the blood of Jesus. This does not mean that we will no longer have any sin in our lives after we become Christians, but rather that we no longer owe anything to sin. We are no longer held captive by the power of sin. Jesus has brought us freedom from sin. And Satan's kingdom represents bondage to sin. 
Whereas Christ's kingdom represents the freedom from it. That's how one interpreter put it. It's a beautiful way to him who has freed us by, from our sins by his blood. But it doesn't stop here. Jesus didn't just free us from our sin by his blood. He also made us a kingdom and he made us priests. We no longer need priests to be intermediaries between us and God. We no longer need to go to the priest to get access to God the Father. We not only have Jesus as a priest, but but he actually makes us to be priests. And he makes us to be a kingdom. Every one of God's people are made priests to God, and they are made a kingdom. Meaning that they're the one place on earth where the kingship of God is now manifested. To be a Christian, dear friends, is to be a person in whom God's kingdom has taken place, has, has grown roots, and is now manifested. To be a Christian is to be a priest to God. Friends, if you are a Christian, I wonder if you've considered your life this way, that God has made you to be a priest for Him, that Jesus has made you to be a priest for God. And this is not just at an individual level, but at a corporate level as well. If Jesus makes us a kingdom, it means that he desires to exercise his reign and his rule in us and through us so that those who repent and those who trust in Christ are people in whom the reign of God is manifested and made visible. This kingdom that Christ sets in people's lives is a kingdom that serves God in, this, in a priestly role. That's why, dear friends, we're all the ministers. Sometimes people still look and see, especially if they come from different denominations, they might say, I don't know how to call you, referring to me, a past priest. They don't think pastor. Priest, a reverend. In the Baptist church, the members of the church are the priests. We're the ones who shepherd and equip the priests, you, God's people, to do the work of the ministry. Jesus has made us to be a kingdom and to be priests. Notice what the praise to Jesus includes. That he would receive glory and dominion forever and ever. The people whom Jesus has made into a kingdom now praise him by giving and ascribing to Jesus the glory and the dominion. How sweet is that? Friends, do you ascribe glory and dominion to Jesus in your praise? Do you declare in your prayers that Jesus To him belongs all glory, all reign, all authority. Friends, to ascribe such praise to Jesus means that we declare our position to be under the reign of Jesus as well and that we love it and that Jesus has all dominion even over us. Let me ask you, does Jesus have all dominion in your life? It would be quite hypocritical to ascribe to Jesus all glory and all dominion forever and ever. But you hold on to a little corner of your life. And you hold on and are not sure if you want to give it over to Jesus. You struggle with the notion of of handing everything over to Jesus. And you're not sure if he can handle it. You think that you can do a better job holding on to certain aspects of your life. It's hard to praise God. Jesus 
with the phrase, all glory and all dominion to be to him forever and ever. And yet in our own hearts to, to harbor an area or areas that we are not willing to give to him. And the greeting announced and uh, continues that Jesus will be coming back to earth and every eye will see him. Look at verse 7. Behold, he's coming with the clouds and every eye will see him. Even those who pierced him and all tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. Even so, amen. The promise that Jesus is coming with the clouds. Friends, it's a promise that's taken from Daniel 7. It's a promise in which one like a son of man, in in Daniel 7, one like a son of man was promised to come with the clouds to receive authority from God to rule the nations. Thus, the announcement of Jesus is coming is not merely that he is coming. It's not even merely that he's coming on the clouds. Both of those are true. But that's not the significance of that imagery. The significance of that imagery is that it is fulfilling the prophecy of Daniel 7. And in Daniel 7, the prophecy was, Jesus is coming with the clouds to receive all authority over the nations of the earth. The very praise that John declared to him be dominion and glory forever and ever is now further unpacked in this announcement. He's coming with the clouds. Listen to Daniel 7. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. Friends, in Revelation, John presents Jesus. He has his vision of Jesus as the one coming with the clouds. He is exactly matching the vision of Daniel 7. Why is this import, echo important here? Because in the days that John is living, the days that John was living and writing, in the day, there were days when the Roman Empire was in charge. It may seem that the dragon and the beast will be winning throughout this book. Quite often they're able, to, they're able to kill, they're able to deceive, they're able to manipulate. But John is presenting this vision of Jesus as coming as a fulfillment of Daniel 7 to show that Jesus' second coming will indeed manifest and bring with him all the authority, all the dominion that belongs to him, even though in the current time this creation does not see it. I love how one interpreter said, God has given to Jesus a disclosure of crucial significance. All the understandings of the will of God are therefore inseparable from the understanding of Christ's work. We get to see here in this introductory greeting, in the introductory section to the book of Revelation, we get to understand what God is doing. He is a God who exists. He is a God who is coming. But Jesus is at the center of God's coming. And Jesus has, has already died. He has already risen. He's already making a kingdom of his followers, priests to his God. And he is coming with the clouds to receive all the authority that is due to him and him alone. Friends, this book started by focusing on Christ's role as, reve- as revealer, as conqueror over death, and as the supreme authority over all authorities on earth. I wonder, I wonder 
Is he your authority? Has he conquered the rebellion in your own heart? Have you surrendered to him? In just a moment, we will partake of of baptism, which is a symbol of, of dying to ourselves, of dying to sin, of dying to rebellion, of dying with Jesus. What it means to to be made new with Jesus. Baptism itself doesn't make anyone new. It is just a symbol. It is just a manifestation of what God has done in our lives through Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, we love you. You have given us your word. And through your word, you have given power to break the the bondage of sin in telling us what Jesus has done for us and telling us what Jesus is making of us a kingdom and telling us that Jesus is indeed coming to take all authority over all the earth. Lord, until that day, day comes, enable us to yield all our submission willingly and joyfully to Jesus Christ who indeed has all dominion. To him be glory forever and ever. Amen.